Uh, so God bless you guys. We're in the middle of a message series entitled, What God Expects of Everyday People. We're talking about the Ten Commandments. So open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. I'll call your attention to verse 14. That's our text for today. I'm not going to read the whole passage today for sake of time, but, uh, but we're memorizing those 17 verses together. And uh, verse 14 is our text for today. So uh, a woman named Wilma died and went to heaven. She got to heaven. She stood at the pearly gates where she was met by St. Peter. St. Peter said, welcome. But before you can enter heaven, you must spell a word. Wilma said, oh my goodness, I've never been very good at spelling. What word must I spell? St. Peter said, Wilma, it's heaven. You can pick any word you want. And she said, really? Okay, then my word is love, L-O-V-E. St. Peter said, that's terrific. That's fine. Welcome to heaven, Wilma. Wilma walked on in through the pearly gates. It was glorious. In a moment, Peter said, listen, Wilma, I need to step away for a few moments. Would you mind watching the gate? So Wilma said, sure, absolutely. So now Wilma's in charge of the pearly gates. She looks out across, and and in just a, a few moments, she sees her husband, Fred, walking toward the gates. She calls out, Fred. Fred, what are you doing? I, I, I never expected to see you here so soon. He said, woman, it was horrible. I was hit by a bus on the way home from your funeral. He said, Wilma, what do I need to do to get into heaven? And Wilma said, well, Fred, you've got to spell a word. Fred said, Wilma, you know I've never been a very good speller. What word is that? And Wilma said, Czechoslovakia. Now, first off, that's not how heaven works. I don't need to explain that to y'all. That's not how heaven works. Uh, But it's interesting to me how that story works because it's funny to us mostly because of the irony. You know, it turns out that that was a loveless marriage, Wilma and Fred. Wilma did not love Fred. And and we find that out, and it's kind of funny. That's where the joke kicks in. That's, That's kind of funny, that irony of a loveless marriage. But if you've ever been in a marriage, and you realize that it is a loveless marriage, it is not a laughing matter. Marriage is hard. Marriage has fallen on hard times in the United States. Um, In some ways, it it sounds better these days. Honestly, all of my life, and, and literally all of my preaching ministry, I've been told that the Divorce rate in the United States was right at 50%. And it's been there since the early 80s, maybe late 70s even. 50%, which means you know half of all marriages in the United States have ended in divorce, even for church couples, which is devastating. But in the last number of years, it's interesting how that number has trended downward. And now, to 2020, the, the latest records we have... The current divorce rate in the United States is at 39%. So literally, things look better for marriage in the United States. And there's really one explanation for that that sociologists have, and it's kind of interesting. The explanation is millennials. Like that generation of young people now in their 20s and 30s, they get married differently. When they get married, they get married, and they tend to stay married more so than their parents and more so than even their grandparents. Couples in their 20s and 30s marrying today, they're staying married, and that's very encouraging. That's encouraging, and that divorce rate is real, and I I think that's kind of amazing. It's really gone down. However, 
not, not everything about the current generation is encouraging. I, I said for the millennials who get married, most of them don't. If you're in your 20s these days, you're much more likely to simply live with your girlfriend or boyfriend than to marry them. And, and, and while that in itself is something that, that's alarming for those of us who, you know, who care about biblical morality, the, the worst part of that is that for those who live together, you know, it's called cohabitation, those who cohabit, um, understand those relationships themselves don't tend to last. Those who live together don't tend to stay together, not even if they have kids and not even if they get married. Those who live together before they get married, once they get married, they tend to divorce at a higher rate, which is not necessarily in, in encouraging news. As I said, millennials, they often live together first, but, but once they get married, they are often getting married much later than previous generations. When my wife and I got married, we were 21, 22, I think. We were right in that, in that pocket. You know, my parents were probably a little bit younger, maybe late teenagers. My grandmother was 11 or something, you know. <laughs> Whoa. Um, so it's, trendy, it's been trending later and later, but, but uh, right now the most current statistics tell us that a woman getting married, a, a first-time bride, is statistically going to be about 31 years old. That... You know, good night, Grandma. I mean, that sounds really old to me, 31 years old. And the man she marries is most likely about 33. So statistically, people are getting married much later in life. And we've always known that people who get married later tend to have marriages that last more so than couples who get married younger. So it's kind of mixed news, but kind of any way you tell the story, we all know that marriage in the United States is nearly always suffering hard times, and, and, and that is certainly true in, in our day. Which brings us to the seventh commandment. Exodus chapter 20, verse 14 is where you find it. It's very simple. It says simply, you must not commit adultery. Thou shalt not commit a, a, adultery. Now, we all know what's being forbidden here on the face of it. Adultery is not a word that most of us don't know. Adultery is when a married person has sex with someone who's not their marriage partner. So it's a married person who has sex with another woman or another man that, that's, that, that's not their spouse. That's adultery. I think we all understand that, that simple definition. So on the face of it, in Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, the seventh commandment forbids, you know, extramarital sex, the person having sex outside of, of their marriage. But um, what you need to understand, help me out with the, with the slides, somebody please. What you need to understand is that the seventh commandment is really more about marriage than it is about sex. Do you understand this? The seventh commandment is more about marriage than it is about sex. Now, it clearly forbids a sexual act, but, but understand how the Ten Commandments work. If God forbids something, it's always more than just simply he wants to draw a line and tell us no. Typically, God is protecting something that's very important, very valuable in our lives. When he gives us guidance, he's showing us the, the best way to live. He's telling us how the world works because he created it all. So when we have a commandment, something that's forbidden like adultery, we have to understand that, that what God is actually doing is, is requiring us to respect marriage to respect marriage by not violating it. 
And so understand, marriage itself is protected. It is to be honored. And the Ten Commandments in verse 14 make it very, very simple that God wants us to respect marriage. Does that make sense? God wants us to respect marriage. And if you're married, especially your marriage. So let's define some terms. It would seem strange that I would have to define the word marriage, but in our day, in our culture, the word marriage is absolutely up for redefinition. It is not necessarily the case that we all mean the same thing when we talk about marriage anymore. So I want to just sort of define it from a biblical perspective because honestly, that's where I get my definition. That's where I want to find the definition, and I'm not going to look to the world to tell me what Christian marriage is. You understand? So let's talk about it. Marriage, to define it, is the covenant union. And those sound like religious words, and perhaps they are. A covenant is a... An agreement. A covenant is a contract. A a covenant is an exchange of promises. Understand? And so marriage itself is this covenant-based relationship. It's a promise-based relationship. It's a union. Scripture says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, and he will cling to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Understand? It's a union, a spiritual union. Marriage is a covenant union of one woman and one man for lifetime companionship. Now, to say for lifetime companionship is to really reduce. Biblical marriage has more purposes than just simply companionship, but companionship will encapsulate what we're trying to say. Marriage is the covenant union of one woman and one man for lifetime companionship. I think that's the biblical definition. So while we're talking about marriage, let's say a couple of things that we probably don't say enough. Number one, marriage is not for everybody. Can I just say that? Marriage is not for everybody. Now, sometimes in church we get the idea that the ideal, the the, the perfect way of life is to get married and have kids. and, And that's not in the Bible. Nowhere. It is not that God intends for everybody to get married. Some of us probably are intended to be single, and and if that is the case for you, that's your calling, then God bless you. You are living a life that is completely blessed and completely, completely recognized by everything in Scripture. Not everybody's supposed to get married. In Paul's own writings, Paul was a single man, and Paul actually writes, I wish everybody was as single as I am. Because for Paul, the purpose of his life was clear. He was living for Jesus. And he said, honestly, because apparently though he didn't have a wife, he knew something about women. Because Paul said, it's really, really hard to please Jesus and then have to go home and please a woman too. I mean, that's what Paul said. A man who's got a wife, he's got a whole lot of things to worry about. And honestly, if you don't have a wife, you're going to be better off. This is what what Paul says. Paul says, I wish everybody could just be single because you're living free as a bird. I mean, so this is Paul. So recognize that. Singleness is absolutely a way of life, which Christ blesses. Now, if you're called to singleness, chances are you ain't freaking out when I'm saying this. Because some of you are single, but you're thinking, you know, please don't tell me I'm going to be single all my whole life. Because you don't find contentment in your, in your singleness, in your celibacy. But, but understand, there is contentment to be found in that when that is the way to which God calls you. So some people are called to singleness. Some people are called to marriage. And honestly, if you're not called to marriage, please don't get married. Follow the Lord. 
So not everybody needs to get married. Marriage itself is not some sort of higher spiritual plane on which we dwell. It's not, doesn't give you any sort of spiritual privilege. It's nothing like that. Some of us get married and some of us don't get married. But if we're believers, the purpose of our life is the same. Whether you're married or whether you're single, if you're a believer, the purpose of your life is the same. It's the same for all of us. I belong to Jesus. And so my life is about Jesus. I have a wife, but my life is about Jesus. And my priority is to serve and love Jesus. And the purpose of my life, according to the gospel, is sanctification. That's a big church word for uh, I'm being made holy as Christ is holy. I'm being changed to be like Jesus. That's the purpose of my life. And if you're a believer, that's the purpose of your life. Single or married, the purpose of your life is to become like Jesus. You with me? So let me tell you something fun if you're married. Here it is. The Spirit uses your relationship with your spouse in everyday opportunities for you to learn to love like Jesus. If you're reading this correctly, you understand that is a loaded statement. It's like setting off a neutron bomb in this church right here because that is really important. The Spirit uses your relationship with your spouse. I'm telling you, the purpose of your life is still just to become like Jesus, but now you got a partner for that. So every single day, I say everyday opportunities, literally, this makes it sound like you have any minute off. It's every day, it's every night, it's breakfast, lunch, and supper, understand? Your wife, your husband is in your life, and the Spirit's going to use him for one purpose, and that's going to be to make you more like Jesus. You with me? So that means, as a woman, the purpose of your life is not just to be the very best wife and mother you can be. I know it's Mother's Day. I know. I'm not trying to make mamas mad. But do you understand? The purpose of your life is not just to be a good mom. That's not what you're created for. You're created to be like Christ, to be the very best disciple of Jesus that you can be. I mean, that's your purpose. Men, your job is to follow Jesus, to be a man of God, the very best disciple you can be. Your job is not to provide and mow the yard and take out the trash and make sure we still got Netflix flowing. Understand, the Spirit uses your relationship with your spouse and everyday opportunities for you to learn to love like Jesus. That's what you're doing. Some of you right now are having trouble in your marriage, I would guess. And I encourage you to get help. But I can help you a little bit right here. I'm I'm being very serious. I can help you a little bit right here because I want to explain something to you. The purpose of your marriage is for the two of you to learn to love like Jesus. So if you're having trouble right now, your problems are not your problem. Your problem is that one of you doesn't know how to love like Jesus it may be you, it may be her, or it may be both of you. My money's on is both of you. We've got two people that don't know how to love like Jesus, and that's your problem. Marriage is about learning to love like Jesus. The Spirit uses your relationship with your spouse in everyday opportunities so that you learn to love like Jesus. So the seventh commandment, honestly, it requires you to respect marriage by keeping the covenant with your spouse. You're keeping a covenant. You're keeping a promise 
with your spouse. And this is what the seventh commandment is about. It forbids anything that would violate the marriage. You must not commit adultery. From a biblical perspective, adultery, extramarital sexual you know, activity of any kind would be a great threat, uh, something that would absolutely undermine the faithfulness and promise that a marriage is built on. So the seventh commandment is more than just forbidding something sexual. It commands us to respect marriage. And if you're married, to do that by keeping the covenant with with your spouse. So if that's the definition of marriage, let's define adultery. Let's do that. I know you're thinking, Pastor Tim, I know what adultery is, you know, because you've watched The Bachelor or whatever you, you watch. So you think you got a pretty good idea. But I remind you, the gospel of Jesus, in every instance with the Ten Commandments, we continue to find that the gospel deepens and transforms what the law requires in the Old Testament, including the Seventh Commandment. So if we're thinking about adultery from a Christian perspective, we have to think about what Jesus said. And what did Jesus say? Interestingly, Jesus said that adultery goes further than just whether or not you hop in the sack with a lady from work. For Jesus, he says, if you even fantasize about hopping in the sack with the lady from work, you're guilty of adultery. I know I just ruined some of you guys' day. Because you've always thought, you know, it's just up in here. I think things, but I don't act on things. But I'm telling you, Jesus knows your thoughts. And you can still sin in your thoughts. And Jesus says, if you're thinking about hopping in the sack with the, with the guy from work, and even if you don't do it, you're still guilty of it. So Jesus takes it past what you actually do. Jesus always gets below the surface down to thoughts and attitudes. Because I guarantee you, you're thinking, you know, my wife don't know and I haven't done anything. It's all in my thoughts. But, but if your wife could watch the video of your thoughts, she would know that she's been violated. She would know that your marriage has been violated. So understand, Jesus knows more about us, more about men and women, more about marriage than we could possibly know ourselves. Adultery is anything that cheats or violates a marriage. Anything that cheats or violates a marriage. And I think that adultery in our day takes some forms that uh, we have options today that the biblical folks never even imagined. I I would say one of the most common forms of adultery these days is what I would just call, for lack of a better word, internet adultery. Internet adultery. I'll just be really, really honest, and it's not always only men. There are women too, but, but, but I'll just say to the men, um, some of you in this room, your wife has lost you to pornography. She's lost you to pornography. You are really messed up, dude, and you know it. You know it. You can't look at your phone. You can't pick up your laptop. I mean, every time you're... You have access, man. You were going to porn. And, and for a while, you tried to keep it secret, man. She'd come in the room, you, you close that laptop. You thought you were good at covering your tracks, but, it, man, you, she's lost you. She's lost you. You are now in a situation where your whole sexual life is with the screen. You, you're not even man enough to walk down the hall and make love to your own wife. Dude, there is something wrong with you, and this is what I'm telling you. It, it violates the marriage. It cheats the marriage. It, I mean, you hadn't even left the house in you know, eight weeks, but understand, you have violated the marriage just the same. I, I would say that adultery is present anytime we look outside the marriage in order to get needs met that are supposed to be met in the marriage. 
And so for that reason, I think there's such a thing as an emotional affair. I think there's an emotional affair. In other words, like you're kind of tired of your husband because, you know, he's, he's not exactly what you expected. But, man, that guy at work, he laughs when you come around and he tells you that, you, that you're pretty. He notices what you're wearing. And, man, you just find him so easy to talk to. So now you're in this habit of actually emotionally sharing, you know, a whole lot more with the guy at work than you ever would your husband. And, and, and I would call that an emotional affair. You're still cheating, violating the marriage. You say, well, you don't know my husband. Well, I don't have to know your husband because I are you married or are you not married? Because if you're married, you act like a married person. You know what I'm saying? I think there are emotional affairs. I think there are people who invest emotionally with people in a way that probably they should only be invested with their partner in their marriage. I mean, it's just, I mean there's just so many ways these days. I, I think it's adultery. I think that you violate the marriage just when you're thinking about, like, your high school boyfriend and wonder what he's doing. So you look him up on Facebook, and then you spend, like, the afternoon looking at his vacation pictures with his family. I mean, you know, I, I, think, I think there's a cheating involved. You all know what I'm saying? Because I know this is kind of the innocent stuff. It's kind of around the edges, and most of us excuse and rationalize that kind of cheating. But I'm telling you, you're violating your marriage. You just continue to shoot holes in your marriage and then wonder why the thing won't float. Adultery, I think, is anything that cheats or violates a, a marriage. So, so let's talk about what it means to respect marriage, what it means to respect your marriage. i got a couple of things, and I'll try not to take too long. Number one. God takes your marriage vows seriously whether you do or not. God takes your marriage vows seriously whether you do or not. Chances are you don't even exactly remember what you said, but God does. He was there. I, I plan a lot of weddings. I got a lot of weddings in the next six weeks, y'all. Like everybody who couldn't get married in 2020 is going to get married between now and July. So tons of weddings. And I love weddings. I love all of it. I love the festivities. I love the reception. I'm going to dance at your wedding. I'm going to love all of it. But I just always want to call the attention for the bride and the groom back to, to one thing. It, it's the vows. It's the promises that matter. It's really hard to get a couple planning a wedding to focus on the vows because they're focused on, you know, the food and the dress and, and, and the seven or eight bridesmaids and what they're going to wear and the flowers. And now you got to get a barn out in the country and you got to get a drone. Like apparently, if it's not photographed from outer space by a drone, you ain't really married, you know, in the year 2021. Because you got to have a drone and 300 people whittling down the guest list. I mean, we focus on all of this, but I'm telling you, it's the vows. That's it. If we just going to have a wedding in Kentucky, you need me and two witnesses and a license. That's kind of it. And the two witnesses, you don't have to know them. Like, I, I do weddings at church, y'all. We can do a wedding right here today. If you got a marriage license, I'll grab Warren. Warren will be your bridesmaid. He's done it a hundred times. I say, Warren, what are you doing right now? Can you come out here? And he'll come out here and witness a wedding. Pull Michelle off of her desk. I mean, you just got to have witnesses. But you're going to exchange vows, and this is what it's about. It's about the vows. It's about the promises that you exchange. And the problem is you didn't even halfway think about that part. You were just repeating after whatever the preacher said. You did not invest your heart. You, you kind of mouthed some things that sounded vaguely, you know, wedding-like. But I'm telling you, God took those vows seriously whether you did or not. 
If anybody knows any verse in the Bible, people know that the Bible says God hates divorce. Everybody, you know, Pastor Tim, I know God hates divorce. I mean, everybody says, I know God hates divorce. But have you ever read the passage where it says God hates divorce? Because it's in, I think, the second chapter of Malachi. You should read that whole passage because it's interesting. Because what you find out is it's not so much that God hates divorce. It's that God actually loves marriage. God loves faithfulness. He can't bless unfaithfulness. God loves faithfulness. And in Malachi chapter 2, the Lord literally says, hey, you want to know what's wrong with your life right now? I'll tell you, because I was there. That's what God says. I was there. I witnessed your wedding vows. Remember? Because the preacher said, before God and this company of witnesses, like, it was really before God. He was there. And he listened to everything you promised. And he's holding you to it. He's holding you to it. Because honestly, we kind of all thought that day with the drone flying over, taking pictures from outer space, we actually thought that you knew what you were doing. We actually thought you meant what you would say. And I'm telling you, God takes your marriage vows seriously. You may have forgotten, he remembers. You may let go, he won't let go. God takes your marriage vows seriously, whether, whether you do or not. So with that, this. In marriage, you define your life in terms of the past commitment and not in terms of present needs or future possibilities. What's that mean? You define your life in terms of the past commitment. I married Casey Wilson on August 12th, 1988 at Woodburn Baptist Church. We stood uh, on the stage in the old building um, and got married. We said all the same things that every young couple says. I promised unconditional love in unforeseen circumstances, did I not? I said, I will love you, I will honor and cherish you for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. That is a mighty big promise. When I said it at 21 years old, I had no idea how much worse things could get. I had no idea. I had no idea how hard things could be. Most of you know our story. In case I had seven or eight, we, we lose count, seven or eight miscarriages. It's a whole season of our life where all we did was mourn. All we had was disappointment. It was so hard. And after a while, like you go through so much just misery together, your spouse becomes the everyday reminder of all of the worst days of your life. You know what I mean? And to just have to figure out how to hope. You know, how do you stay together when it feels like staying together is going to be hell? Uh, I mean, you know, you don't know. When you say in sickness and in health, you have no idea how sick a person can become. But you make a promise. I made a promise to forsake all others and keep myself only for her as long as I shall live. It's a promise. And that promise has defined my life. Now, there are moments in marriage where you have present needs and they're not necessarily being met in the marriage. And you're thinking to yourself, I'm not happy. I'm not happy. 
and I'm beginning to lose any kind of confidence that she can make me happy. Maybe I'll be happier somewhere else, and that's the very moment that the promise has to kick in. Understand? That's where the promise kicks in. No, no, I made a promise to her. I made a promise. And I didn't promise that everything would go well. I didn't promise her we'd have, you know, babies. Didn't promise any of that. What I promised was no matter what happens, better or worse, rich or poor, sickness and health, you'll have me. That's the promise. I can't promise what our lives will be like, but I promise you'll wake up and go to bed with me. And, and that promise defines my life. If, if I'm in a season where it's not happy together, we still promise to stay together, and we'll get through this season because I'm telling you, you'll come out on the other side into something better. It's just how life is. Problems don't last forever. Trouble doesn't last long. But I'm telling you, there are seasons when you're really going to have to depend upon the promise. You know, they used to sing the old song, love will keep us together. It doesn't. It doesn't. Commitment keeps you together. Commitment. Not present needs and not future possibilities. Because sometimes you start thinking, man, what if? Man, what if I just pitch him to the curb and me and the kids go and we start a new life? Because sometimes you're thinking about future possibilities. Man, if I just lose him, lose her, I can start fresh. Man, I could, I could, I could devote more time in my career. I could travel. You know, just get done with her and all of her nagging. I don't need it. But understand, it's not about future possibilities. It's not about present needs. It's about the commitment you made to her, the commitment you made to him. I said, God blesses faithfulness. He can't bless unfaithfulness. So quickly, uh, the seventh commandment calls you to make a deep decision, and it's not just about sex. It does forbid adultery, and you're going to make a decision not to be an adulterer. I get that. But understand, because of Christ, it's deeper than that. You're not just making a deep decision about sex. You're making a deep decision about the kind of person you intend to be. Do you know what I'm saying? I said it's about the promise that you made. I mean, you made a promise. I mean, it was photographed from outer space by a drone. It was an important promise, we thought. I mean, you spent, you know, $5,000 on a dress just to wear to make that promise. We thought you meant it. But if you would stand right there and say, I will stay with you for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, sickness and health, till death do us part, and then you don't keep that promise, then what exactly can we depend on you for? Is there a promise you would keep if you wouldn't keep that promise? You're making a decision about the kind of person you intend to be. And it takes a certain kind of person to make a promise and keep it. And if you're not that kind of person, don't get married. If you can't promise faithfulness and be faithful, don't get married. If you can't make a promise to stay with somebody and, and keep that until you die, then don't get married. This is what marriage is. It's a deep decision about the kind of person you intend to be. And you got to be faithful. And you have to be a promise keeper. D do you know what I'm saying? It's a deep decision, not just about sex, but about the kind of person you intend to be in. If, if you can't keep that promise, is there any promise that you'll keep? Because that's a statement about the character, person you are on the inside. So, so real quickly, if we're talking about respecting marriage, then understand, I think that the most important marriage for you to respect is your own. So let's talk about five ways to strengthen your own marriage. This is way too fast and way too little, but maybe it'll give you something to talk about on the way home. Number one, get spiritual 
get spiritual. You're believers. I'm assuming that I'm talking to Christian couples. But as I've told you, my, my, the last 12 months, the most significant question I've heard was asked to me by a Christian man who said to me, Pastor Tim, is it possible that a Christian man can marry a Christian woman and they never have a Christian marriage? When he asked me, I'd never considered that, but the moment he said it, I knew, yes, that is absolutely, that is absolutely possible. Not only is it possible, I think it's really common. I think some of you, you're, you're a Christian man and you're a Christian woman, but at the same time, it's not a Christian marriage. You don't share anything spiritual. You don't pray together. Like your husband, not one time in the bed has ever reached out, grabbed your hand and just started praying. If he did, you would think that Jesus was coming back. I mean, you know, that just never happens. Or you don't even know the sound of your wife's praying voice. You know the sound of her voice, you know, when she's mad at you, but you don't know the sound of her voice when she's speaking to the Savior of her soul. And I'm telling you, there's something wrong with a Christian man and a Christian woman who lived together for you know, decades and never managed to have a spiritual relationship, never have a Christian marriage. It's more than just sitting beside each other on a pew. It's certainly more than just sitting at home and watching worship you know, while she cleans up the kitchen and he works a crossword puzzle. That's not a spiritual relationship. You need to get serious about your relationship with Christ. You need him in the center of this thing. You need his love and his faithfulness to be the ground underneath your feet so you got something solid to stand on when staying together feels like it's going to be hell. You understand? You need Jesus in the middle of this thing, and you two haven't yet made that step. Get spiritual. Number two, get alone. Get alone. Be together. Invest in one another. You got married because you were best friends. And you had this friendship because you loved to be together and you did things together. And now you don't do anything together. You can't think of anything to do together. I, I mean, oh my goodness, all you do is, you know, you, you come in, you eat supper in front of the television, and then you fall asleep in front of a rerun of Law and Order. Understand, get alone, get together, invest in this friendship. I've told you all before, in 25 years of marriage, I've never seen a couple get divorced get divorced that didn't say they love each other. They always say they love each other. What they say is, I love her, I just can't stand to live with her. Or, or she'll say, I love him, he's the father of my kids. But we don't have anything in common. I don't even know who he is anymore. Do you understand? Marriages don't fail for lack of love. They fail for lack of friendship. You need a friendship. You need to come back to the friendship, and that means getting alone together. In order to have now what you used to have, you got to do now what you used to do. Get alone. Number three, get transparent. You got to talk and communicate honestly. See, you've been married 20 years now, and, and you, you know, honey, I hate to break the news to you, but after 20 years, he still can't read your mind. He's not a mind reader. Not only that, he doesn't even pick up on subtle hints. He is dense. Like some of you this morning are mad because it's Mother's Day and he didn't get you anything or he didn't get you what, you know, he was supposed to get you. And I'm just telling you, if you didn't tell him, he didn't know what you wanted. Well, he ought to know. He doesn't. I mean, news break, he doesn't know. He doesn't know. The only way you're going to get what you want is if you either tell him directly or I just suggest go buy it, wrap it, and put his name on it. He... He's not getting your subtle hints. You know, so like, you, you, you've been mad at her for 13 weeks, and you keep waiting for her to notice. She ain't going to notice because you act mad anyway. 
She's not going, I mean, you can just pout like a big baby, but she's not going to know until you talk to her. Talk to her. Talk to her. When you were dating, you take her home, you sit in your driveway, you talk three hours about nothing. You could talk all night long about nothing. Now you can't talk three minutes without somebody pulling out their phone. There's something profoundly wrong with your relationship. Get transparent. Talk. Talk to one another. All right, I'm going to do this. I'm just going to say this one. Uh, And I'm not joking. Get naked. I'm not kidding. And I, if I have to explain this to you, I can't even help you. you. You can't be helped if I have to explain this. I'm not making a joke, you all. I'm not making a joke. If the seventh commandment forbids sex outside of marriage, just guess where sex belongs. Where does it belong? It is God's good gift for a wife and her husband, and it is a good gift. And none of you say amen. What's wrong with you people? What's wrong with you people? I'm not kidding. I'm not making a joke. As a pastor for 25 years, it's just amazing to me how in talking to students, like high school students, college students, we're always trying to help them stay pure, right? Stay pure for marriage. Because when you are single, the devil does everything he can to make you have sex. I mean, he puts temptation. He traps you. I mean, the devil does everything to make you have sex when you're not married. But the minute you get married... The minute you get married, he'll do everything he can to keep you two from being together. Nobody tells you that, but he'll do everything he can. And if if you've already lost that loving feeling, understand, you've allowed the devil to steal something good from you. I, I said you're supposed to be friends. You're supposed to be lovers, too. You're supposed to be lovers. This is God's good gift. What's wrong with you? Oh, my goodness. Now, when you got married... You know, man, you cleaned up, your bridesmaids gave you one of those lingerie showers. You got all those, you know, fancy nightgowns with Christmas lights and all that stuff. And, and, and now, now you go to bed every night in a flannel nightgown you bought at Cracker Barrel. You bought it at Cracker Barrel. There may be a place for your flannel nightgown in your marriage, but I would say the place is in the wood-burning stove, okay? And guys, what are y'all laughing about? I mean, guys, you don't want coming into the bedroom with, you know, pork rinds in your beard. I mean, come on, dude. This is something beautiful to be treasured and cherished together. And the devil will do everything he can to make you, to make you abandon each other sexually. I can't help you a whole lot. I can, I can help you in little things. Number one, get your kids out of the bed. Like, get, don't, your, your babies have come and taken over your bed. Like, you are now in bed, and your son sleeps every single night in your spot. Dude, get him out of the bed. Get him out of there. And you say, Pastor Jim, that can't happen. That can't happen. You know, our little precious, you know, we, we tried. We, we just can't get him to sleep in his own bed. I, I'll tell you, I said the same thing. Because our son, like we put him in bed, we'd sing Jesus loves me, and we pray over him, and we put him in bed, and you think he was out. We go to our bed, turn out the lights, and you hear, doo, 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 doo. he would come right across the house and get in our bed. And my wife couldn't take it. Yo, y'all know my wife. Plus, my wife didn't want to miss out on any of all this, you know what I'm saying? And so, so my wife, you think, you think you can't train a kid to sleep in his own bed? My wife can do it. 
My wife can do it. My wife did it. My son is in Texas today. Understand? I mean, she can get him out of the bedroom. It can be done. Get your kids out of the bed. Get your dog out of the bed. I mean, man, come on, dude. When you were 13 years old, the idea of being in a bed with a warm woman was the most exciting thing you could think about. And now you got a warm woman and a dog. You know? Do I have to tell y'all everything? Get rid of the kids, get rid of the dog, get rid of the iPad. Maybe take the TV out of your bedroom. I mean, I mean, come on, you all, come on. You can't be helped. I can't help you all. Uh, but one last thing. If you're in trouble, please, and I, I can't say this seriously enough. If you're having trouble in marriage, get help. Get help. It's hard. It's really hard. And you're going to feel like the only couple that's ever been through what you're going through, but you're not. You're going to feel like the only couple that ever got to the, you know, to jumping off place and you feel like it's all you could do not to jump. We've all been there. We've been there. And we can tell you what it's like to have to stay when staying is hard. And we can also tell you how it gets better when you stay. My goodness, all of the best fruits of marriage are way out there at the edge of the lens. You can't expect to just get into it and think it's going to be great. You got to work and build it. Seventh commandment is clear. You must not commit adultery. Obviously, it forbids any kind of sexual activity out of marriage on the face of it. But it's more than that. It's about respecting marriage. If you're married, respect your own marriage enough to believe in it, work on it, and keep your promises. This is what I'm telling you. You may forget about what you promised her, but the Lord doesn't forget. People will let go, you know, but the Lord never does. You know, he says, I was there. I was there the day you made the promises. You want to know something great? He's still there. He's still with you, and he won't let go. But pray with me. Lord God, bless married couples. Lord, bless the husbands and wives in this room and in the sound of my voice. Lord, it's hard. And standing there at the altar on that day, that beautiful flowery wedding day, Lord, most of us had no idea what we were promising. We thought we did. We thought we knew. We just had no idea how bad things could get when we said better or worse. We had no idea how sick a person could become. We had no idea how difficult it is to live with no money. But we promised. So Lord Jesus, will you, will you make it so that your love and your faithfulness are, are the ground beneath our feet so that we have something solid to stand on when it feels like our marriage is falling apart? Will you put in our hearts some sort of fortification, something that will help us, Lord, to guard our own hearts and protect our own marriages? Lord God, will you bless our church? Will you help us to respect marriage and lift it up high? Lord God, will you help us to be the kind of people who can make a promise and keep it? Lord, not only that, will you make us to be the kind of church where little boys and little girls grow up among us, Lord, in our, in our classes, under our teaching, watching our examples, Lord, and, and our children grow up to be men and women of character who can make a promise and keep it till the end, even when it hurts. We just want to be faithful, Lord, as you are faithful. And 
holy as you are holy. God bless us. None of this is easy, and we can't do it without you. So help us all, Lord, single and married, husbands and wives, simply to lean upon you. Lord, you and you alone are the one who can hold things together when everything falls apart, Lord. So we're asking you today to hold us together. Help us in all of our relationships, Lord God, to learn to love like you and to honor you, to bring you honor and glory in our marriages. We pray these things, Lord, in Jesus' name, but for our sake. Amen.